You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, what a joy it is for me to be here today to preach on this, the Sunday after Christmas. When our pastor, George Hinman, asked if I would preach on this Sunday, I was really happy because uh, on this Sunday, uh, I had the chance to preach on the Matthew text about the wise men. And so I was very excited to get this assignment. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Lord, be our teacher today so that we may learn what you want us to know and that your good, good news will come into our hearts and we'll be able to understand it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The New Testament tells us of only two groups of people who were especially invited to visit the Holy Family and see the baby Jesus at the time of his birth. Think about it. Just two groups of people. From St. Luke's Gospel, we know of the first visitors, the Christmas Eve, middle of the night shepherds. They were told by an angel, they saw an angel, and they heard what the angel said. Uh, They were frightened, and the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then they even told, the, the angel even told the shepherds where to find the baby. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So they were the first. And they find the Holy Family and they tell the Holy Family all that they heard and also the carol they heard sung because the angels been a great chorus of angels sang to them, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In Matthew's gospel, we meet the second group. And if you want to open to Matthew, the second chapter, I'll lead you through that second chapter where Matthew tells us of a second group who are especially invited to see the Holy Family. It begins, in the time of King Herod. Herod is the king. Herod had actually been named king by Julius Caesar. He was a Nebatean, actually, by birth. But he, because of his father who had befriended two uh, Roman generals, Mark Anthony and Octavian, they went to Julius Caesar and told him about how Antipater had helped them. So Julius Caesar gave Antipater tremendous properties, tremendous gifts of property and, and wealth, which lasted throughout the whole time of the House of Herod. But then Antipater is assassinated soon after that, and then Julius Caesar, uh, at the recommendation of Mark Anthony and Octavian, named a man named Herod to be the king, and he's called Herod the Great. He's not popular with the people. He's not really Jewish. He's from, uh, he's an Ebatean uh, from the East, but he is the king. He becomes extremely powerful, has extreme wealth. The, the, the buildings, if you go and make a trip to the Holy Land, the, the buildings and the villas and the castles that he built, including Masada down to the Dead Sea and, of course, Caesarea on the Mediterranean, all these are absolutely lavish. He built the temple, the temple that, 
the, the wall stones that stand in the temple today were the ones built by Herod the Great, not David. And he spent 38 years building that temple. He was a, he was a king, but he was a terrible, terrible man. And, uh, but uh, he is the one we meet in Ma- Matthew, the second chapter. So in the days of Herod the king, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The word for wise men here is a Greek word magis uh, or magi. And in classical ancient Greek, that word was used to refer to philosophers of mystery or mystery philosophers. And we see it in ancient Greek writings. So the word magi, by the way, the English word magic comes from that word. They were philosophers of mystery and of signs. And these wise men from the east. Now, the word for east is Anatolia in Greek, which means the rising. They they were from the east, from the rising sun from the, 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 that we would call the west, of the east. So wise men from the east, from Anatolia, came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? We observed his star at its rising. Then they use this word Anatolia again, at its rising. We have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened. Actually, the, the word phobia is not used here, but it's the word for troubled. That he was troubled. And in fact, the, go- the text goes on to say, and all Jerusalem with him. This has created a stir in the city of, of anxiety and troubledness. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. And calling together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, the new king would be born. They said to him, and now they quote the prophet Micah. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's been written by the prophet Micah, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And that chapter 5 quotation from Micah is given to the wise men and because Herod asked for it. Then Herod secretly calls the wise men together, and he learned from them the exact time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. And when they heard the king, they set out. And when they and when and And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, two fragrances and then gold. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Well, here are two groups of people that are invited uh, to see the Holy Family and to see Jesus at the time of his birth. These magi, uh, these philosophers of mystery, they're they're uh, men who are putting together pieces of a great puzzle. They're on a quest. 
It started with the rising of this star. They saw this rising star. It causes them to search for the king that's to be born. They therefore journey to ask Herod, who is the present king. And when they ask that simple question, it turns out not to be a simple question because it throws a whole city into a kind of a, a terror of, of restlessness. So then the scribes, though, they quote Micah 5 and because Herod asked them, what do they know from the prophets? And they, they read this Micah text, which then becomes the key clue. Think of the wise men. They have two, they have two parts of the clue. The puzzle. They have their rising star experience, that mystery of that. And now they have the clue of this text from scripture. And that becomes the most important clue for them because they follow that clue and that search then leads them to Bethlehem. And they find Jesus and they worship him. And then they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they leave. I want you to notice how each of these two groups play an important role for the Holy Family. Think of it this way first. They both play a role. They're especially invited in the providence of God to come to this scene of the birth. You know, not just anyone is invited at the time of the birth of a child in your family. It's very special people that are invited to come to the home at that moment. And so these two groups have that special invitation. Uh, think of the role they each play. Take the shepherds first. The shepherds become a divine assurance marker for the holy family. The shepherds uh, uh, come and visit this family. They're far from home. Their relatives are not nearby. And in the providence of God, these night, nighttime shepherds are invited to come. And they tell the Holy Family the words they heard, the words from the angel, and the song they heard. They tell this. We're told that in the text, that when Mary heard these words, she was comforted. She pondered them in her heart. They became words of assurance. They were an assurance marker for Mary and Joseph. Remember, all Mary and Joseph have to go on is that Gabriel encounter. Gabriel the angel had told Mary, this young virgin, that she would bear a child. That would be a child of the Most High. Joseph trusted that and believed her. And believe also he had a, a, a dream that assured him. But that's all they had to go on. And now they get a an assurance from an independent source of these shepherds. Uh, they don't realize perhaps how important they are in that they become what I call assurance markers for that family. They need it and they have it. Now the wise men. The magi also become divine assurance markers. They announce to Mary and Joseph, that this boy is the true king. They announce the lordship of Christ. The shepherds announce the savior, the saviorhood of our Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now from the, the wise men, they hear that he is the true king. They hear the truth affirmed from the wise men. The wise men give that and they pay homage. They worship him as true king. And then they also do something else. They give gifts, three gifts. Uh, that's why somebody talk about three wise men. We don't know if there are three or more, but they gave three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Now, unless you know first century economics, you'd think they seem like impractical gifts, but they're not impractical. In fact, gold is not impractical today. It's the one universal currency in the whole world today is gold. And it was then too. It's the most valuable currency there is, is gold. But the other two uh, currencies of the first century would be fragrances. Did you know that fragrances like frankincense and, and myrrh would be as valuable as gold? If you had a fragrance, remember in the, in the book of uh, Luke, we, we were told about, I mean, in John's gospel, we we're told about the anointing of Jesus' feet with pure nard. And it's Judas that announces to the, the disciples' band that that was $9,000 in present-day currency, $9,000 worth of nard that was used to anoint Jesus' feet. Fragrances are terribly valuable. And a fragrance, uh, frankincense is the most permanent and long-lasting of all fragrances. It's used universally in the perfume industry today because of that power. It's the most powerful of all fragrances. And it was in the first century as well. Myrrh was used always in the burial of kings. So if you had fragrances, this young family is given pure uh, traveling capital. And so the wise men gave the, the holy family gold and two fragrances, which they can use for their flight into Egypt. Because they've got to make a getaway as soon as the wise men leave. That's the next sentence in, in, in the book of Matthew. That after the wise men left, Joseph also warned in a dream, says, we've got to get out of here now. Herod is trying to kill the child. And they went to Egypt, to Alexandria, and they had money because of the wise men. Aren't you glad the wise men didn't give an aquarium to the holy family? <laughs> uh, the wise men gave three very practical things to this family. It's in the providence of God. The family needed it, and then they need the warning. And the wise men also, when they were warned themselves not to go back to Herod, they obviously warned the family, don't go near Herod, get out of here. And so they play this important role to the holy family. All right, now, I want to make a second reflection, though. Notice how each of these groups, just like narratives we have of other people in their journey of faith and their experience of grace and faithfulness in the New Testament and Old Testament, notice how these two groups are also an encouragement to us because they represent two kinds of discovery that uh, the wise men and the shepherds both represent two disparate, but yet there are similarities, but two kinds of discoveries that happen in their lives. And that becomes very helpful to us in our journeys. Let me show you. Take the shepherds. The shepherds hear the amazing good news and it's heard totally by surprise. They're not searching for a Messiah. They're not looking for a rising star. They don't see, they wouldn't know one star from another. They are out at night and they're watching their sheep. And they're probably the kids of the shepherd band because at night you wouldn't put the main, the main men that run the, the, the sheepfold. They'd be out during the day. These are the night shift shepherds. And they're out there guarding the sheep. That's literally watching over is the word for guard. They were guarding their sheep from predators and they aren't expecting anything. And then this angel appears, and by the way, in the RSV, in the Greek text, when the angel appeared, this messenger appeared, it said they were mega, mega phobeo, very, very, very frightened. They were, more than the city of Jerusalem was just troubled, but they were frightened, scared to death, sore afraid. And then the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy to all the people. Notice the word joy appears in both accounts. A great joy to all the people. 
and for you is born a Savior. So these shepherds make a discovery, and they're not even looking for it. It's an amazing good news, totally by surprise. They're not looking. They are found by the sheer goodness of God. They don't find the sheer goodness. It finds them. Have you ever had this kind of an experience? When you were caught off guard and goodness dawned on you, love dawned on you, came to you by surprise, and you didn't expect it, and yet it had a tremendous impact on you. Uh, Victor Hugo wrote an amazing novel, in my opinion, one of the three greatest novels ever written called Les Miserables. It's now a great movie, too. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen the play about ten times. And I read the book from cover to cover, which is what most people haven't done. And you should. <laughs> it is an amazing, amazing novel. But in, in, that, in that amazing opus, uh, Early in the early in the story, a young uh, so, a young man uh, who's on parole from Tulane uh, prison uh, can't find a job. He starts uh, so he's tempted to steal. He is given an overnight uh, a chance to have overnight uh, uh, sleeping quarters in Father Benvenu's house. He sees the silver that Father Benvenu has. He decides to to take a few pieces so that he can get going with his life. And then the gendarmes catch him. And they bring him back to Father Benvenu. And as you know, one of the great scenes in Les Miserables is when Father Benvenu, seeing this boy now captured by the gendarmes, and says to the boy, Ah, oh, you have that silver. You didn't take the candlesticks. I wanted you to take those too. And the boy, the young man, is totally baffled. The gendarme, and then he says, You can leave gendarmes. And the boy is totally broken. And then the great prayer moment in Les Miserables when Father Benvenu prays for Jean Valjean and says, Jean Valjean, I have bought your soul for God. And he never forgets that. It was a moment of sheer grace. He didn't deserve it. It came by surprise. He didn't expect it. It happened. It'll happen later to Marius when Marius is rescued, carried through the sewer by someone who rescues him from the... Uh, uh, the, the night and the barricades, and he never knows who did it until late, way late in the story, he finds out it was Jean Valjean. It was a total act of grace from someone he did not expect it from. And that is Victor Hugo reflecting on the kind of experience the shepherds had, sheer grace, by surprise, they didn't expect it, there it is. I had a somewhat same experience myself as a, as a young man. I grew up in a wonderful uh, family, and we had a little church in McLeod that I went to. I was in the youth group, even in that youth group, in that church. And then I went off to college, University of California at Berkeley. And I kind of let it all go. I became a secular kid. I got active in other things, and hiking club and stuff like that. And uh, I went to movies on, on Sunday. My, unfortunately, my family found my date book of all the things that I did when I was at Cal and there's only one place where I wrote study I wrote movies all the movies I went to <laughs> and I uh, it, it just was not a part of my life I didn't go to church for the whole freshman year and half of my sophomore year and then somebody said to me you know they're doing this performance here at Cal called Messiah by George Frederick Handel it's a masterwork you should go see it hear it and I'd never uh, in McLeod we never had Messiah done there and I <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about it. 
I think I'd heard the Hallelujah Chorus, of course, but I didn't know anything about Messiah. And I went and saw this performance of George Frederick Handel's masterwork, Messiah. And I was blown away. I wasn't prepared. It wasn't what I expected. And there was one song that absolutely so captivated me that when I left that performance, I kept singing it to myself. There's a great moment when the contralto sings the song. Uh, it's, both songs are from uh, our Lord's words in, in, the, in the book of Matthew. And the contralto sings, uh, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. I thought to myself, that's the most beautiful melody I've ever heard. I still think it is. And then following the contralto, the soprano comes in and sings, Come unto him, all ye who are heavy laden. I left that performance, and all I could do was sing that song. It's a little bit like leaving Les Miserables and can't sing anything but one more day. It just stuck with me. It's funny, I think about a week or so later, a friend of mine, Arba Hudgens, invited me to a Bible study group in my dorm. And the rest is history for me. But you know, in a way, George Frederick Handel caught me off guard. That music caught me off guard. Many people have been caught off guard in the musical Les Miserables. They should be. There's some sheer grace there. And it just caught me. And it made me ready to hear and learn. And so that, I think the shepherds play that kind of role with us. Well, you think that, that only people that are looking find, but sometimes people who aren't looking find. But then what about the magi? The magi are looking, they're searching, and they're looking for a great answer. And by the time we get, we meet them in Matthew, the second chapter, they've spent days searching. A long time. And they've come to Jerusalem. They've asked the king if he knows anything. They've discovered the cynicism and how troubled Jerusalem is. They probably became very pessimistic hanging around Jerusalem. They only had one thing going besides the, the mystery of the rising star. And that was the Micah text. They did get that out of Jerusalem. And that becomes the way they find the child. Not the star. They find the child because of Micah. And the rising star and the mica is all they've got to go on. But they still continue to move. And look, no one in, in Jerusalem moves the muscle to go with them. Did you think about that? No one went with them. No Pharisees, no Sadducees. They don't go. They're too frightened of Herod to go. And of course, they weren't invited. They didn't go. And But they go. And the wise men go. And when they search, they find Jesus. And then, interestingly enough, the word joy appears there. They were extremely joyous. By the way, do you know the word joy in Greek means surprise? They were surprised. Good surprise when they saw this child. Wow. So then you get a little bit of both. I think there's, it's wonderful if you can have both. Both be a searcher and, on the other hand, to be found by what you're searching for before you find it. Some heroes of faith have both experiences. T.S. Eliot is one of these, as far as I'm concerned. I love T.S. Eliot. His journey started in the most cynical and pessimistic place. Fortunately for us, 
He wrote poems all along the way. And so we can track him. When he was 18 years old, he wrote his first great poem, which some people think is his best poem of all. He wrote it at Harvard University as, a, as an undergraduate. It's called Proof Rock. And believe me, it is a grim reaper poem. Listen to the opening line. Let us go then, you and I, while the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized on a table. <laughs> that's not a cheerful way to begin a poem, but that's how he begins Proof Rock. And he even describes his own life by saying, I've measured out my life with coffee spoons and I haven't found any meaning at all to life. That's his first poem. 1917, he wrote it. But he's not finished. In 1922, he writes even a worse poem, for which he gets the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> and that's The Wasteland. 1922, The Wasteland. A huge, long poem filled with the word nothing, nothing, nothing. If that isn't bad enough, in 1925, he writes an even worse poem called The Hollow Men. Starts out with, we are the hollow men with straw-filled heads. In fact, the end of that poem, the guy, the hollow man tries to pray the Lord's Prayer, but he can't get it out because he can't remember the words. He's starting the Lord's Prayer, he can't get the words out. And so Lewis, T.S. ends the poem this way. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. And that's the hollow man. That's 1925. And then in 1927, he became a Christian. T.S. Eliot became a Christian. Here's how he describes his becoming a Christian. I'm going to read Eliot now, his own description later. He said, I saw the void, the disorder, the meaninglessness, the futility. That's those other poems for sure. I saw it. And it could only be understood or endured by means of a larger faith. I needed something bigger. I therefore united, listen to this line from Eliot. I therefore united the profoundest skepticism with the deepest faith. And so fortunately he wrote a poem about that. And guess what that poem is called? Journey of the Magi. Journey of the Magi. That is a great poem. It tells about how he became a Christian. I'm not going to read much of it because uh, I want you to read it on your own. But here's the Journey of the Magi, how it starts. This, uh, this, amazing, uh, this amazing poem. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of year for a journey and such a long journey. The way is, the way is deep and the weather sharp. A very, the very dead of winter. That's how he starts the poem. And then they arrive in the little village and says, and we arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place it was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again, but set down, set this down. Were we led all that way for a birth or for a death? And I'll let you read the rest of the poem on your own. But he says, I went for a birth, but when I saw the birth, all my gods died. All my gods died. I went back to my own country, a foreigner. I discovered what was truly permanent. All my gods were not permanent. This was permanent. And that's how he describes becoming a believer 
in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. They both go together at Christmas. At Christmas, we have the quest that many people have and the quest they're on and it finds an answer. But the profoundest thing about Christmas is that the answer finds us and takes our breath away before we ever finish the quest. That's why he can say the profoundest skepticism and the deepest faith came together. When I realized I needed something that was whole, that was permanent. And that's what happens at Christmas. Joseph Muller and Franz Kruber in 1818 wrote what is probably our favorite of all Christmas carols. But boy, the theology is so deep in that carol. Silent night, holy night. I'm going to read the third stanza. Silent night, holy night. God's uh, holy night. Uh, son of God's loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. I chose that as the title of my sermon today because that's what the wise men were looking for. The dawn, the Anatoa, the Anatolia, the rising of light in the morning. And the, Franz Gruber and uh, Joseph Muller saw that that's what is happening in the birth of Christ. We have from his holy face, the dawn of redeeming grace. And then the last line, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Silent night, holy night. He is the Lord. He is the one. I, I haven't written very many Christmas poems of my own, but I did write a Christmas poem this last year. And it, because it occurred to me, when do we rightly celebrate Christmas? And I wrote this poem. When do we rightly celebrate Christmas? The right day is the day when we remember with joy the Jesus of Christmas whenever and wherever we are. Remember him this day. Remember him next week. Remember him the week after that. Every day is the right day to remember Jesus who is the same when it was yesterday, when it is right now, and when tomorrows come our way, whenever and wherever we are. And the inspiration for that poem for me came from the book of Hebrews. Remember Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what Eliot found in the journey of the Magi. That's what the shepherds found. That's what we find when we find Jesus Christ at Christmas. Heavenly Father, help us to find that permanent love, that permanent grace that is the answer for the void, answer for meaninglessness, answer for every quest in every life. And thank you that it's good that you feed your flock like a shepherd. And that we can come to you heavy laden and find rest. Thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio. 
Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.